Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Previously on The Yellow Car. The defense brought two top ballistic experts. Both said that the bullet came from a class 38, which was what my dad had at the time, but so did millions of other people. You would not be able to say that it was absolutely one way or the other Mike's gun? No. But you could say it could have been another gun. Correct. How can there be such differing views? The state expert said it's an unquestionable match. Do examiners tend to greatly disagree when it comes to making an identification? No, I don't believe that is the case at all. As a matter of fact, the opposite. If you look for something long enough and hard enough, you're eventually going to find it. Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic subject matter. Some people may find it disturbing. Have you ever done one of those really complicated jigsaw puzzles? You know, the ones with a thousand pieces and all kinds of intricate colors and designs? Okay, so picture yourself sitting at your kitchen table, trying to put one together. But you've lost the box with the picture, so you have no reference for what the puzzle should look like. You know the pieces go together somehow. You just don't know how they fit. That's exactly how I imagine this journey has been for Pune Gray. 31 years of working the same complex, impenetrable case. A labyrinth of evidence and clues and no clear-cut way to connect everything. But after all these years, there has been one small piece to the puzzle that kept her going. The yellow car. After the homicide, after I came back from college, my dad had already been convicted and I started to look into this case. One of the things that I did is I started interviewing um, residents at the apartment complex. And one of the first people I interviewed was a woman who lived several doors from my mom's uh, apartment complex. That woman is Diana, Effie's neighbor, who I told you about in episode one. She's the person who saw the yellow car leaving the apartment complex around the time Effie was shot. And she said that morning she heard a pop, didn't know what it was, but nonetheless walked to her window to close her window. And at that point she saw a yellow car backing up from four or five stalls over from where my mom's body would have been laying. And she said this yellow car backs up at high speed to a point where it almost hits the cars that are parallel on the parking lot, pulls up to where my mom's body was. And then she said it was hauling. It was hauling. That's what her words. It took off. It took off very quickly. From the start, the yellow car has been the one clue, the one piece that Pune thought maybe just maybe could connect everything and help her finish the puzzle. That's as good as it gets in the absence of somebody actually seeing the shooter, that we have a car that was seen at the crime scene. Find the yellow car, find the killer. And guess what? We have identified the yellow car, by the way. 
I'm your host, Ashley Korslund. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. When Effie Antizari's body was taken to the medical examiner's office after her death, there were some peculiar findings. The ME noted bruising on her hand, both of her lower legs, ankles, and shins. He determined those injuries were unrelated to her murder. It was on her arms. Um. Pune remembers seeing the bruising for the first time on her mother's body. It was at the funeral home. And I circled them. And she had some on her legs, too, as far as I can remember. Um, I circled them and then contacted Karen Dodona, my dad's attorney, to come and photograph them. Karen Dodona was representing Mike during his divorce from Effie. She was not his criminal defense attorney during the murder trial, but Pune asked Karen to come to the funeral home to document Effie's injuries. There were multiple defensive wounds on her forearms. Here's Karen. You know, that seemed to be an important fact. What did you make of those wounds at the time? Did you think it, well, could have been Mike who did that? No, I can't picture Mike doing that. Remember, Mike and Effie were going through a bitter divorce and were wrapped up in a lawsuit with Mike's brother over money they allegedly owed him. And Effie and Mike's divorce attorneys both told police they weren't aware of any violence between the couple throughout the divorce process, which is why the bruising on Effie's body discovered after her murder raised eyebrows. What most people didn't know just yet is that neighbors in Effie's building had observed odd noises coming from her apartment shortly before she died. Effie seemed to have been in trouble. And at that point, I found out from the apartment manager and a couple of her, the neighbors, that there had been some concerns in my mom's apartment. Um, In hindsight, when you put together some of the other things that came out later with Effie's neighbors complaining, about yelling and arguing coming from her apartment. That kind of makes sense that maybe she was getting pushed around. But who would want to hurt this petite daycare owner and mother of two? And why would they execute her in broad daylight? Maybe she got mixed up with the wrong people who wanted her quiet. Pune says that's exactly what happened. I think my mom found out stuff she shouldn't But before Pune was aware of any of this, and before her mom's murder, she was an energetic, focused college student. It was 1988. Pune was a junior at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, about six hours from where her parents lived. She knew they were having problems in their marriage, so it came as no surprise when she got the call from her mom. And I remember my mom called and said, hey, I just want to let you know that um, your dad and I are separating. So I've moved out Um, and I just want to make sure you're okay with it. And I said, what took you so long? (laughs) Because the plan was for that to happen when I went to college and I'd already been uh, three years in. Effie had already filed for divorce twice before, but this time was the real deal. She was ready to move on from Mike and their more than 20 years of marriage. First, though, she needed to find a new place to live. She had some friends that were renting a home from us, from my parents, and uh, so she moves in with them. 
Those friends ran in the same social circle as Effie and Mike. They were all from Iran, just like the Antazaris, and they all lived in Vancouver, Washington. And then what do you remember of those people at the time? I didn't like them. <laughs> so why not? Um, I didn't like them from the get-go. Uh, so, you know how sometimes you meet those people and you're like, something's not, you know, just something doesn't feel right. The vibe is off, something's off. Yeah, it, something just didn't fit. And um, Pune says the group had big financial problems and turned to her parents for help. Their car had been repossessed and they'd been evicted. And then they had come and asked my parents if they would be willing to uh, rent the house to them. So, and I was against, I was completely against it. But Mike and Effie ultimately agreed to rent out one of their properties to the group. And that's where Effie later moved during the divorce. My mom was, um, you know, she was just more trusting and she always saw everything with rose colored glasses. And yes, they had flaws, but I think she felt like so do a lot of other people and you just need to go along with it. After about seven or eight months, things turned sour. Effie moved out and into her own apartment, and Mike decided it was time to evict the group from the Entazari's rental home. She wanted them out as did, well. Did they end up evicting them? Yes. When was did. that? Um, my dad started, see, my mom moved into her apartment in October, and my father, uh, started kind of the process as early as January and then filed uh, the court in February of 89. Months before the murder happened. And they were, um, <laughs> yeah, and he got a judgment against them for non-payment of rent and damages all within the week of my mom's homicide, the week prior to my mom's homicide. Around the same time that Mike was filing those complaints, Pune came home from college for a visit. It was a Saturday toward the end of April. So I called my mom and said, hey, I'm in town and can I come and see you? So um, I went there. I remember driving up to her apartment and she was um, standing at the window waiting. And I walked in and said, well, that was a nice greeting. <laughs> um, she normally wouldn't do that be staring out the window waiting for you. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I mean, why are you staring at the window? Uh, it's a little odd. I, th I thought it was odd. I mean, I, I knew her apartment number, so. Um, and she said, well, I just wanted to make sure you weren't followed. And I thought it was an odd comment, but I, you know, I was young. Today, I'd ask a lot of questions. Um, they talked about normal mother-daughter stuff, Pune's boyfriend, her future plans, and her upcoming college finals. But then the conversation and the tone changed. And of course that then went into my saying to her that I was, uh, I had been really worried about her. And um, why, why, do you, why were you worried about her? Just be living alone? Well, no, it wasn't that. She wasn't acting like herself, you know. Um, it's hard to explain, but 
I mean, you have kids, so you always, you know, if something's bothering them, you can kind of hear it in their tone. And I, I thought, so, I, I knew something was wrong with my mom. I didn't think something was wrong. I had actually made comments to my friends at college that I was worried about my mom. Oh, before this you had. Mm -hmm. And what were some of those indicators, those warning signs? Um, she just wasn't acting normal. She seemed really nervous, you know, from my mom who giggles all the time and doesn't seem to care about anything to um, just seem nervous. Did you chalk it up to the divorce at the time or did you think something more sinister was going on? I thought something else was going on because I, no, I didn't think that divorce, plus the divorce had been going on for some time. I remember saying to her that I, uh, I don't like the people that she's hanging out with and I want her to get away from them, that I think they're bad people. She's referring to the people Effie lived with in the Antizari's rental home. Even though Effie wasn't living with them anymore, she still kept in touch with them. Pune can't really explain why she didn't like them. It was just a gut feeling. And her comment was, I know and you don't know how bad. And I remember it not sinking in because I said, no mom, they're, I think they're really bad people. I want you to, I don't want you hanging out with them. I want you to um, get away from them. Effie ended the conversation by telling Pune the group had been borrowing money from her and she was trying to distance herself. Effie didn't go into detail about the money and Pune didn't ask. Do you remember the very last words you said to her? Yeah, I just said, see you next week. And that was the final time Pune talked to her mother. Effie died nine days later. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. The morning of May 1st, 1989, Pune was back at WSU. She had been pulling all-nighters lately, cramming for her upcoming finals. That Monday morning, she arrived back at her sorority house. So the night before that, I had been at the Cub. Uh, it's a huge study hall at Wazoo studying. Um, and then I went and stayed at my boyfriend's house. So I wasn't home <laughs> until... I think I walked in at about mm, 7, 7.30 that morning. And uh, I walked in, took a look at my board, you know, the pegboard where the girls would put up the notes, and I had a ton of little stickers. And I thought it was my parents calling because they knew I'd get stressed out during finals week. So I just assumed that it was them calling to say, good luck studying or good luck with finals or something to that effect. So I ignored, I ignored it. Her sorority sisters tracked her down, insisting Pune call the local police. There had been an emergency. And they wouldn't leave until I made the phone call. So 
I called, and I just happened to be right across the street from the Pullman police. So I called and they said um, they needed me to come down. Um, um. This is where Pune gets emotional. She recalls the next thing she knew, she was at the police station with a pit in her stomach and no clue about what officers were about to tell her. I remember a guy took me in to a room and um, he said, your mom has died. And, and I said, oh, did she get into a car accident? You know, because she wasn't sick. And it, I mean, that's the first thing you think of. You don't think someone murdered her. That happens in the movies. It doesn't happen in real life. Um, and I remember him saying, no, it wasn't a car accident. And uh, that, um, she had been murdered and it still didn't I remember it didn't sink in because I I said to him I said what you know that doesn't happen like what do you mean by that and he said well she was murdered um Pune doesn't remember much else about that conversation her head was spinning nothing made sense that evening, after she could grab some clothes and pack up some items to take with her, Pune got ready for the long drive home. Her college boyfriend, who was also from Vancouver, didn't want Pune to go alone, so he drove with her. Now keep in mind, this was 1989, before everybody had cell phones and could text life updates in real time. So the two had no idea that as they made the six-hour trip, police were pulling Mike over on the side of the road back in Vancouver and swabbing his hands and his clothes for evidence. And just as Pune and her boyfriend made it into town, police were wrapping up their search of Mike's house. For that reason, it was probably for the best that Pune stayed the night at her boyfriend's mom's house. They didn't get in until almost 3 a.m. They were exhausted, but Pune barely slept. I, I remember laying there going, what is going on? How could somebody kill my mom? That was the beginning. I was just going to say that was just the beginning of what was about to come. That You know... I have a completely different perspective on life now than I did 30 years ago, but you just don't know from day to day what's going to happen the next day. And in one day, my entire life, everything that I knew or had known was gone and changed. And it was not ever going to be the same. As the sun rose Tuesday morning, Pune got up and went right to her dad's house. And I remember he opened the door and he looked really bad. I mean, like, really, really, really bad. Um, and I, I said, are you okay? And he said he's really tired and he just needs to lay down for a little bit. 
That could be because the day before, Mike had gone to Providence Hospital for an EKG after experiencing chest pains. Or maybe the stress of Effie's murder and the investigation was getting to him. Either way, at this point, police hadn't arrested Mike. They had only searched his car and house the night before. And as far as Pune knew, investigators hadn't publicly identified any suspects. I just remember the next thing I know, we're at lunch. Um, And he said that the police had been there till late in the morning. The day after your mom's death, when you're sitting there having lunch with your dad and he's eating a burger... Was there ever a moment where you looked into his eyes and you had maybe a shred of doubt and you wondered, did he kill mom? No. I knew he didn't. Um, No. And I'll tell you why. So when when we lived in Iran, we lived in an apartment complex and it had floor-to-ceiling glass. And we had flies in Iran. And I remember sitting there whacking the flies on the window. And my dad came up to me and he said, what are you doing? And just like trying to get rid of the flies. And he said, you know, that fly has a life. And you're taking that life away. And I never thought about it that way. You know, I just thought it was a ugly big fly. It was a big ones. (laughs) Um, Spiders. I hate spiders. I'm deathly afraid of spiders. And I scream, my dad come running in the room. I'm like, kill that spider. And he would go, no, we're not going to kill it. And he'd pick up the spider and go put it outside. So that was the person I was raised with. He wouldn't kill my mom. He wouldn't have killed my mom. And you never thought he would put a hit out on her either, even if he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger? No. No. Mm -mm. But we all know how this story ends. Police eventually arrested Mike and he went on trial. Through all of it, he maintained his innocence. It turns out Mike even hired a private investigator to look into Effie's murder while he battled to clear his name in court. Mike spent a lot of money on it too, upwards of $10,000. Which makes you wonder, would a guilty man go to such great lengths? Honestly, I don't know. And as for Pune, at the age of just 21, she started her own investigation. One that would take her down some dark paths. In the days after Effie's murder, Pune learned about those disturbances that had been reported at her mom's apartment before her death. One neighbor told police he had witnessed Effie arguing with a man. Another recalled seeing her with visibly red eyes, as if she had been crying. In one police report, a neighbor described noises coming from Effie's apartment a few months before her death, saying it sounded like someone was getting the tar beat out of them. Others claim to have seen several suspicious cars near Effie's building in the weeks before the shooting. There was a blue car seen uh, by a neighbor scoping up my mom's apartment one week prior to our homicide with two men appearing to be Middle Eastern sitting in it. My dad didn't have a blue car and and it, the blue car was described as a, it looked like a, a newer MR2. 
Dad didn't have one of those. Um, there was a maroon van scene going to her daycare center and to her apartment. My dad didn't have a maroon van. And then on the day she died, neighbors said they heard Effie's door shutting loudly just before 4 a.m. She was shot less than two hours later. While neighbors didn't know who could have been harassing or hurting Effie, Pune had her suspicions, suspicions about the group of people Effie lived with during her divorce from Mike. Now, I wanna take a minute to explain something because this is where things get complicated. Since investigators haven't charged or arrested any of the people Pune suspects in Effie's murder, I can't use their names, which means I have to use pseudonyms for the group. One of them is the suspected shooter, John Doe. That's whose DNA was likely found on Effie's body at the crime scene. To keep things simple, I'm going to name two of the others, Jane Doe and Frank Doe. Pune thinks they hired John Doe to carry out the hit. Jane Doe is Effie's acquaintance, who seemingly tried to lead investigators to Mike as the prime suspect. Frank Doe is Jane's business partner. And there's one other person Pune believes was involved in the murder or had knowledge of it. The driver of the getaway vehicle, the yellow car. The yellow car was perhaps the best and only clue from any witness at the crime scene. And we've addressed that Effie's neighbor Diana reported hearing a loud clapping noise outside of her window around 6 a.m., the time of the murder. She thought the noise was a car backfiring. When she looked out the window, she saw a yellow car backing up at high speed, driving closer to the area where Effie's body was later found, slowing down, and then speeding out of the parking lot. Roughly 20 minutes later, a different neighbor found Effie's body on the pavement and called 911. As it turns out, Diana wasn't the only person who told investigators about a yellow car. Pune says a second witness did too. And we just had another person that came forward who said he saw the yellow car as well and told the police about it. She says this witness told police about the car back in 1989, right after the murder. But as far as I can tell, it didn't do much for the investigation. I can't find any information about it in police reports. Pune says that's because detectives didn't even look into it. They didn't put it down in a police report. Fine. Just didn't think about it? Didn't think it was important? They wanted to get rid of the yellow car because everybody was wanting to see what this yellow car was. They were trying to dismiss it. Because I remember talking to the DA and I said, don't you think you should follow, find the yellow car? Probably somebody that was having an affair saw what happened, got scared and took off. I said, so find him. And prove that you're right then. I mean, oh, but they're a witness to the crime. Right. We need to find them. They didn't, and they didn't want to give any more fuel to the yellow car theory because my dad didn't have a yellow car. I read through thousands of documents as I researched this case, and I didn't find any indication of an investigation into the yellow car. Now, that's not to say detectives didn't look into it. I just couldn't find it in the police reports that I received through my records request. However, during Mike's murder trial, his defense attorney, Stephen Thayer, hammered home the yellow car theory as a way to establish reasonable doubt for the jury. Mike didn't have a yellow car. Thayer called out police for not tracking the car down, blaming them for almost instantaneously going after Mike. 
The prosecutor, Art Curtis, admitted that police never did find the yellow car or the driver. But Curtis wrote it all off as a red herring, a distraction from the facts of the case meant to confuse the jury. Curtis pointed out one big problem, too. No one ever proved the yellow car had anything to do with the murder at all. Pune, on the other hand, felt the car was the best lead at the time. So in the days after her mom's murder, she went on a mission to find it. That's what led her to start knocking on neighbors' doors at Effie's apartment complex. And that's how she met Diana. I was able to track down and talk with Diana. She didn't want her voice used in this podcast, but she did confirm to me her original statements to police. Back in 1989, Diana couldn't say for sure the make or the model of the car she saw speeding away the morning of May 1st, but she thought it looked similar to an older Datsun B210. That detail is what launched Pune's one-woman investigation into the yellow car. Now that she had a possible model of the car spotted at Effie's apartment... I went and I interviewed our suspect's next-door neighbor. Pune went sniffing around Jane Doe's neighborhood and talked to a neighbor. And I said, have you seen a yellow car that looks like a Datsun B210 at any point? She said she had, and she said it's not a Datsun B210. She said it looks just like a Datsun B210, but it's a Toyota Corolla. And she knew it was because she said she remembers coming home and seeing the car at the neighbor's house parked on the curb and thinking her friend, who has the same exact car, was... um, there to visit her and then realize it belonged to the neighbor. The woman told Pune she had seen the yellow car parked outside of Jane Doe's home shortly before the date of Effie's murder. Obviously, that was a huge lead, but Pune needed to know who owned the yellow Corolla. She needed something concrete. So she went to the DMV and asked for records of every person in the state of Washington who registered a Toyota Corolla in 1988 and 1989. And there were a lot of them. They gave me two huge binders with every single person's name, address, the make and model of the car, and the color. So then I had to go through and highlight all the yellow Toyota Corollas. So I sat down and I went through every single person and I found, an Iranian in there who owned a yellow Toyota Corolla. But was it connected to the murder? And could she prove it? So we went and interviewed, the owner had since passed, but we um, interviewed his daughter. And his daughter said, yes, they owned the yellow Toyota Corolla. And... um, The daughter told Pune her dad had experienced some engine problems, so he took the car to an auto body shop to get it fixed. She said the the car went into maintenance in either March or April of 1989. That was just weeks before Effie's murder. Now, she doesn't know what mechanic it went to, but she said her dad bartered with people. And but most importantly, they kept the car for over a year. And how does this group connect to the auto body? The shooter is a mechanic. Our shooter um, is a mechanic who specializes in Toyotas with engine problems. Um, I think the guy needed a car to use that morning that wasn't gonna be 
register to him or anyone else involved in the group and he used that car but it was seen and because it was seen they had to kind of keep it out of um production and over a year is what she said they kept it for um she said that she remembers asking constantly where's the car because they needed it for college and it was still in the shop shouldn't take that long to Fix an engine. Fix an engine. And so just to recap here, Pune tracked down a family who owned a yellow Toyota Corolla. They told her that they had taken it to a mechanic in the spring of 1989, and they didn't get it back for some reason for more than a year. Pune says the suspected hitman, John Doe, just happened to be a mechanic. Pune believes after the car went into the shop, John Doe and the rest of the group made a plan to use the car in the murder. That way they could avoid using one of their own vehicles that could be easily traced back to them. Pune thinks after the shooting, John Doe kept the car in the shop for over a year just to be safe in the chance that someone had seen it at Effie's apartment during the shooting. Now remember, Effie's neighbor Diana, who saw the yellow car speeding away from the crime scene, she had reported hearing a loud clapping noise, like a car backfiring, before she saw the yellow car speed away. You could assume the clapping noise was the gunshot that killed Effie, but Pune has a different theory. So it, the testimony that we're hearing on what, what people heard and what was seen that morning is consistent with a car that probably had engine problems. There's one more intriguing detail about the yellow car. It involves the witness I mentioned earlier, the man who had reported a yellow car to police after the murder in 1989. Well, it just so happens that in June of 2020, Pune's attorneys received a sworn statement from him telling his account of what he reported to police all those years ago. And just for context here, his son had attended Effie's daycare at the time, and he occasionally helped out there. So the man knew Effie well. Two days before Effie's murder, he walked in to the daycare where his son, where he left his son and where he used to go and help. This is Pune's attorney, Renee Rothage, explaining what the man wrote in his sworn statement. It was a Saturday. He noticed there was a car in the parking lot a yellow car. He thought it was odd. He stopped. He went in and what he saw there is still in his mind today. He still to this day can't unsee what he saw. He observed two Middle Eastern men who had cornered Effie in the kitchen of the daycare. One was very, very close to her. Her hair was mussed up on one side. She was in obvious distress. When they saw him, they backed away. He said something to the effect like, are you okay? Because he was concerned. And she responded in a somewhat shaky voice that yes, she was, but he f had the feeling she wasn't. And then soon when they saw that he wasn't leaving, the two men left, went out into the parking lot, got into the yellow car and left. And this is significant to us because this assault happened two days before her murder. The parent went on to write in his sworn statement that a few weeks after the incident at Effie's daycare, he attended her funeral. And what, or rather who, he saw there rattled him. 
as I said, he had worked at the daycare. He considered himself to be a friend of Effie. And so, of course, he went to her funeral. And he was surprised to see the two gentlemen that he had seen assaulting her in the kitchen of her daycare at the funeral. But the real clincher in the parent's story comes at the very end. He concludes his sworn statement by circling back to the yellow car that he saw outside of Effie's daycare two days before her murder. The parent writes, the car resembled an older yellow Toyota Corolla. And as for the men who left in that car, the parent has identified one of them as the alleged mastermind behind the hit, Frank Doe. Now that she believes she's connected the yellow car to her suspects, Pune needs to connect the suspects to the crime and to one another. Well, this might help. A meeting between Frank Doe and the alleged hitman. We have proof that within 30 days of the murder, this person of interest went to the home of the person we believe is the shooter and we have that documented. Which is interesting, considering the two claim they don't know each other. This is the beginning of the end. Next time on The Yellow Car. So your, your father's private investigator followed, followed the man you believe um, put the hit out. Yes. And he drove to the, the person's house who you think was the shooter. Yes. And they wouldn't have any other reason to be doing business that you know of? They're claiming they don't know each other. Today they're claiming they don't know Today each other. Today they, they're claiming they have no idea who each other is and have never known each other. You know, I've been doing this for 31 years, right? I pretty much went behind them and picked up every crumb they left, and they left quite a few. So these are dangerous people. Very dangerous people. Extremely dangerous people. So they wanted your mom out of the picture. Once she found out, yes. The Yellow Car is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff.